All right. Well, I have 6.30. Do you all have 6.30? I think we all have 6.30. So what a, what a pleasure uh, to be able to share with you guys tonight. Uh, Pastor Don has already taught several of these lessons through Matthew so far this spring. And Terry has already taught several of these this spring. And Ron taught one a couple weeks ago. So we're going deep into the bench tonight. And... Uh, I'm, no, no, we're going deep into the bench. We're uh, we're on the third string, fourth fourth string now. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, we picked these topics earlier, in, like back in January, and mine just all happened to be later on in the spring. So, uh, Pastor was just sharing at this table over here. Some of you may be aware, may not be aware. Let's be praying for. Our dear sister, Terry Pittman. Terry was to have left this morning at 6 a.m. to fly to Chicago, to fly to Iceland with her sisters and some brothers-in-law, and she got 101 fever in the middle of the night and is still at home with fever and bad aches and pains. And so She was tested for COVID and flu, and both were negative. As of 4 o'clock today, she said, I still have fever and my head hurts terribly, so I'll get another COVID test tomorrow is what she said. So, y'all pray for Terry, and we'll pray that she can get past it soon enough that she can maybe go for the end of the trip. We don't know, but we'll pray to that end. I think the rest of them went. I, that was my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Just the Lord wanted her here. Something good is going to Why don't we have a word of prayer? We'll get started. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for a beautiful, sunshiny day. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and study it together. Thank you, Lord, for our sister Terry. We love her so much and for all that she does for you and for our church. We would be lost without her. Lord, right now, she is not feeling too well, and we just pray, God, you would heal her body of whatever is causing this fever, heal her body of whatever is causing these headaches. Lord, our prayer would be that she could join her sisters at the end of the trip at least. But God, more than anything, we just we pray for her health. We pray for her comfort and her healing. We just ask, we know you're with her, but we pray that she would be able to feel your presence with her even now as we speak. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all right. Some of y'all know, others don't, that I spent, the, I used to say the first half of my life. Now it's around the first third of my life. Uh, I was born and, and grew up in Virginia. Uh, but other than my dad's mom who had moved in with us, the rest of our family has always lived in South Louisiana and in Mississippi. So we only saw extended family every once in a while when I was a kid. We did not see extended family very often. At the most, we saw extended family twice a year. And so you can imagine our surprise one summer night when one of my father's sisters called us and said, Hi, we are in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we will be there tomorrow. We said, Okay. So don't get me wrong, right? We were happy that they came, all five of them, to see us. But you can imagine just a little bit of frustration, at least especially on my mother's part, that we didn't have a little more notice. Some of you ladies were nodding. 
And some of you have been there, right? Most of you have probably had a friend or a relative stop by unannounced right at dinner time. I like to call Pastor Don at his bedtime. Uh, he doesn't answer, but I do it anyway, just so he knows I'm thinking about him. Only on Saturday. <laughs> uh, and you know, you don't mind, but you would have loved to have known so you could have planned differently. Well, when we come to the story in Matthew, surrounds this miracle, we're talking about the miracles of Jesus as presented in the Gospel of Matthew all spring long. This is a situation where Jesus had a few people drop in unannounced, about 5,000 men and their wives and children dropped in unannounced. So if you have your Bible, let's be in uh, Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Now, I know y'all know this, that each of the gospel writers uh, had a particular audience that they were writing to, had a particular theme in mind. And so in most cases, the gospels We'll share a few of the details a little bit differently than the other gospel writers. I, had a, I heard a great illustration of this one time. This was way back in the late 90s. Y'all remember when the Atlanta Braves were on TV like every night because of their deal with oh, yeah. WTBS, Turner. with yeah. Turner? Yeah. yeah. And so, and you remember they were not very good for a very long time. And then all of a sudden they got all these pictures and they were really, really good. And they made the, they made the World Series for the first time ever. And... You might remember they had a first baseman, a guy by the name of Sid Bream, was a big six foot four, big, big, and slower than molasses kind of a guy. And uh, on the play that sent them to the World Series for the first time, probably since they were the, probably since like Hank Aaron's days or something, uh, he was on first base. And this other guy hit a ball into the outfield, and here he comes from first base trying to score all the way from first base, this six foot four, 250 pounds slower than molasses first baseman. And so the, the illustration that I heard about the Gospels was the preacher brought several Braves fans up onto the platform that day, and he said, tell me, were you in person? Were you watching on TV or listening on the radio? And she said, well, I was watching on TV. He says, tell me what you witnessed. And so she told him from her perspective how she had seen on TV that the hit had gone out there and Sid was coming, you know. And the second I said, what about you? He said, oh, I had to work, so I was listening on the radio. He goes, okay, tell me what you witnessed. And he described how he heard it being done or being played out on the radio. And then he asked the third person, he, she says, I was there in person. It's like, okay, tell me what you witnessed. And so she described it, of course, from, from her perspective of having been there. And so he asked the question. He said, now, who's telling the truth? They all are. They're all just telling different details from a slightly different perspective of the same event. And that's kind of what we get with the Gospels, right? We get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling the same stories of Jesus, telling the same life and ministry of Jesus, but from a slightly different perspective from one another. But they're all telling the truth. They're all just telling it with some slightly different nuance. And so here in Matthew chapter uh, 14... Uh, Matthew has included some details of some of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom that some of the other gospel writers hadn't included. Um, but this event that's happening when, when Jesus is about to feed the 5,000, um, what has happened here most... The word, just, the word just went away. Most recently, 
most recently, uh, sometime prior, he had sent the 12 out on their first preaching expedition. And then following that, there was the death of John the Baptist. And then we, we get these events. So in some of the other Gospels, uh, they leave out some of the teaching that takes place between that preaching, uh, preaching journey of the disciples and the death of John the Baptist. Um, I say that to say they've come back from this preaching journey. They've learned about the death of John the Baptist. And now we're going to come to uh, our story in our text. But he'd sent them out to go and preach, preach repentance, heal in Jesus' name. This was, this was really the first time he'd sent them out in that way. And when they came back, he wanted to spend some time with them. And so he offers to take them to a secluded place. Only that wasn't meant to be. What had, what had originally meant to be a time of rest for Jesus and for the twelve became an opportunity for them to minister to, to thousands. So here we are in, in Matthew chapter 14. Just follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21 in this very small print. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they heard of this meaning the death of John the Baptist, when he heard the news. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So they said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. All right, this is the only one of Jesus' miracles. Y'all check me on this. The only one of Jesus' miracles that all four gospel writers include in their historical accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. So I, I put at the top of our note sheet tonight, this is the miracle that nobody forgot. Right? The miracle that nobody forgot. Jesus decided his disciples needed some rest. They needed a spiritual retreat. So they load up in the boat. They, began, they begin to sail across the Sea of Galilee to a more secluded place. And as they're sailing from the northwestern side of the sea to the northeastern side, so from this side to this side, I've not been to Israel. I want to go someday. But it was probably about a four-mile distance straight across by boat. And those of you that have had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land have probably seen this in person. But it's about four miles across by boat. And it was about nine miles around the northern shore uh, on land. So they start taking out across by boat to go those four miles. And the text tells us the Bible, God's word says that all those people started going the nine miles around the northern shore and they were going to meet them on the other side. 
And so when they got there, uh, the crowd had already begun to gather and was already waiting for it. It says when, when, uh, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, I don't know. I can't run 100 yards without getting winded. So I don't know how they went nine miles faster than they went by. But maybe it wasn't very windy that day. I don't know. But, but they beat them there. And they were waiting for Jesus when he arrived. And God's word says that he saw them. And as the story proceeds, it's already fairly late in the day. And as it's getting later, the need arises for the people to eat. And so the disciples do this inventory. They come up with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, don't think nice people like it would have mattered. We're talking about thousands of people. But these weren't even big loaves of bread. These were probably pitas, you know, something about the size of a pita uh, shell. And uh, they have those. And John, in John's gospel, tells us they were from a little boy. He's the only one that includes that detail. Uh, and the Bible says Jesus proceeded to feed the crowd. Now, no matter which of the Gospels we read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's no getting away from the fact that Jesus made something from virtually nothing. He took a little bit and he made it into a lot. There are allusions in this miracle here to Moses that reveal Jesus as the leader of the people. There are allusions in the miracle here to reveal uh, Jesus Allusions to David that reveal him as the true shepherd. There's a sort of foreshadowing of the Last Supper here as he's breaking the bread, right? Because he is the true bread of life. So this is a very important event in Christ's ministry. So no wonder that all four gospel writers would have remembered to have included it in their accounts. And so we say, yes, wow, this, um, this is one of the, well, I mean, they're all miracles, but this is one of the big ones, right? John only includes seven in his gospel, and it made the cut. So, right, this is one of the big ones. And you know yet there are people who call themselves Christians who would deny that this event actually happened as it's described here in the text. One theologian claims the five loaves and the two fish were what the disciples had selfishly tucked away for themselves. And that when the crowd saw the disciples sharing it, it prompted them to share too. I don't know how it still would have been enough, but that's one of their little theories. See, I'm using pejorative adjectives. One of their little theories. I'm giving myself away. Uh, one theory uh, is that, uh, that there were uh, ladies who would go ahead of Jesus and stash all the food so it'd be waiting for them when they got there. That's another theory. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, then there's Albert Schweitzer. Some of you might know that name. Albert Schweitzer was a German theologian. He was one of the 20th century's foremost critical scholars. Uh, he all won a Nobel Prize for philosophy. That doesn't make his theory of Jesus any better. He said, no, this was a sacramental meal where each person received only a tiny fragment of the food. I uh, still don't know how it would have gone far enough, right? I just don't know. Um, and then I think the theory that takes the cake for me uh, is that Jesus had it all stashed and that he was merely tricking the people 
pretending to be multiplying it when all he was really doing was divvying out some that he'd already had stashed. Now, personally, honestly, between you and me, I, I don't know how a person who says they believe in Jesus could hold that theory of these events, you know? Because if he was doing that, then he was deceiving the people, right? And if he was deceiving the people, then he was a liar. And if he was a liar, then he wasn't who he said he was. If he was a liar, he wasn't sinless. He, and he couldn't have been our sacrifice. He couldn't have been anything that he claimed to be. So I, I don't believe Jesus had all that food just hidden away. And that he, I, mean, I believe what the Bible says, that this was a miracle and I think the fact that all four gospel writers include it bears out the fact that this is what really happened. And to try to reconcile this miracle, really, or any miracle, let's be honest, to try to reconcile that with our modern sensibilities is to miss the point of the story entirely. You know, I, I have a hard time watching magic tricks because I'm trying to figure them out. You know, especially now with social media. These people will post their little card tricks or their other tricks on like Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and I'll watch it back 30 times looking for the cut in the video or looking for the trick, you know, and that's to miss the point altogether, right? It takes the joy out of the illusion. That's just a little insight into my soul, uh, how my brain works. But to do that with the miracle of Jesus, to say, all right, well, we're going to try to figure out the illusion, is to miss the point altogether, and the point is this, there's one who's like Moses, but who's far greater than Moses. And there's one who's like David, but who's far greater than David. There's one who's like Elijah and far greater than Elijah. And there was one who was like John the Baptist, but far greater than John the Baptist, and his name was Jesus. And he's the one who brings the healing and the salvation and the hope. That's the point of the miracles. Pointing to his person as the unique son of God. And we believe that. We're not the people who would try to explain all those miracles away. So then, how do we respond in this, to a story like this that we've all heard, most of us have heard since childhood? What difference should a story like this make in our lives? So let's look back to our text and we'll find some, some thoughts for application this evening. And the first one that I want us to, to, to consider tonight is that in the kingdom of God, because that's really what's happening here is... We read in Mark chapter 1, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. And we read Matthew, and we're struck by all of the Son of Man terminology and all of the kingdom of God terminology in Matthew. And then we read Luke, and we see the parables in Luke. And so many of the parables in Luke begin, the kingdom of God is like, right? And so we know that the Gospels are showing us a different king in a different kingdom than the world's. And so I put that just as a little header over all of the rest of the little points there tonight, the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, dot, 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 because this is what Jesus is showing us how it's going to be in eternity, right? In his kingdom, in the, in the realm where he is the final king. So, and this here's the first one is is in the kingdom of God, compassion for others takes priority over personal comfort. In the kingdom of God, compassion for others takes priority over personal comfort. Jesus had just found out that John the Baptist had been murdered. And his disciples had recently come back 
from this preaching expedition, and they were all tired, and they were all sad, clearly, about John the Baptist's murder, and they were trying to get away from people, right? That's why Pastor turns his phone off, because he knows I'm going to call him, right? They were trying to get away from people. I'm going to be so sad when we have a pastor, and I can't just interact with you like this. I am. He's still going to call you. I am. I will. We can cry together when the Bears lose. We can cheer when they win. Don't go far. Don't take an interim in like Tennessee or anything. I mean that. I really do. Okay. All right. Any, we're back. Sorry. I was just having a little personal chat there. Uh, I love these people. Uh, okay. Where was I? They were trying to get a rest. They were trying to get away from people like me. All right. Uh, and they'd earned it and they needed it. And physically and spiritually, they needed to be refreshed and recharged. And yet we know from the story that when they arrived at that place of respite, there was already a large crowd of people who'd beaten them there. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us, but I can only imagine what the disciples' initial response might have been when they saw the crowd. You know, so often Jesus' word for the disciples was like, don't you guys get it yet? So we can kind of put ourselves in their place and imagine, if the text allows us to do that, to imagine what their response might have been when they saw the big crowd already waiting when they got there. Probably would have been something like, oh man, all right, Jesus, I really need you. But look how Jesus responded when he saw the crowd. Verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Compassion. Where the disciples or you or I might have been tempted to see a crowd of people standing in the way of some much-needed rest and relaxation and refreshment, Jesus saw lost, wandering people in need of someone to show them the way. Over in Mark's gospel, he says, Jesus looked upon them as if they were sheep without a shepherd, right? Uh, that brings us several Old Testament allusions there. In Numbers 27, when God's explaining to Moses that it's time to enter the promised land and you're not going to go, Jesus, or Jesus, Moses says to God, Okay, but don't send them alone. Send them somebody to lead them so they won't wander like, I'm paraphrasing, so they won't wander like sheep without a shepherd. You know? Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34 is a harsh, harsh prophecy against the priests and the priestly class of Israel at that time. It is a harsh word, and it says they're bad shepherds. And the people have basically been shepherdless because of how the supposed shepherds have acted and treated and not followed after the Lord. And so we have these Old Testament instances of this idea of sheep without a shepherd. And then we come to this, this particular miracle, and at least in Mark's gospel, in Mark's accounting of this same event, he says, Jesus looked upon them with compassion as if they were sheep without a shepherd. So what, what, what do you think of or what images come to your mind 
Terry does a great job of discussion, so I'm going to try to emulate that. Uh, what images come to your minds when you hear the word compassion? What, what, what do you think of when you think of the word compassion? Anybody? Caring. Caring. That's good. Having mercy on. What else? What do you think? Or what, what, maybe what image comes to mind when you think of compassion? Do you see a face other than Jesus? No. The nurses that cared for my dad when he was 91 to 94 in that nursing home, they were kind to him. It's good. Selflessness. So how about this? Compassion, the root word, or the the big word in there, passion, in the Greek had uh, connotations of agony. Right? You say, oh, such and such is my passion. What you're really saying is, "That's, that's what I agonize over. You know? And then we add compassion to it, and it brings it even more internal. And in the Greek compassion, uh, it almost, it's like a feeling, and I don't mean to be gross, but it's like a feeling you feel in your bowels or your intestines. No, I'm serious. And the Hebrew, the Hebrew cognate, uh, they would often translate as like, it had to do with what you would feel in your, in your kidneys, right? Because they didn't have our English vocabulary of the 21st century. And so they were, they were using a word for something that you feel all the way in your insides. Yeah. This is also the word that uh, Luke uses to describe the Good Samaritan when he looked upon the wounded traveler with compassion. He was feeling as deeply for that man as Jesus is feeling for these 5,000 plus wandering people on this evening there on the shores of Galilee. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a strong word. I, I think sometimes we lose some of that with English, like, oh, he's so compassionate. And we, we mean it well, you know, uh, but I think sometimes we lose some of just how deeply felt in the innards. That's a good technical term right there, innards. Uh, it's a Hebrew term, pastor. No, but how that, that's compassion. It's if you've been a parent, you understand something of that depth of feeling when you see your child going through struggles. Yeah, that's what Jesus felt as he's looking at these people that day. And here's the thing: the people had plenty of so-called teachers. They had rabbis. They had legal scholars, the Pharisees. They had Sadducees. They had people who knew the Torah one side up and down the other, and they knew all the laws, and they knew all of the reasoning behind all the laws, and they knew all of the reasoning behind all the laws that they added to the laws. But they had no one lovingly to lead them. 
They had their rules and their laws and their traditions, but they had no one to guide them in the way. They were waiting for good news, and what they had been getting was good advice. And so Jesus looked upon them in the Bible, and, and, and at least three of the four accounts says he looked upon them with compassion. He looked upon them with a, just that deep inner emotion of wanting to do something for them. Before his martyrdom in a Nazi concentration camp, Dietrich Bonhoeffer described the plight of people without a shepherd like this. He said there were questions but no answers. There was distress but no relief. There was anguish of conscience but no deliverance. Tears but no consolation. Sin but no forgiveness. He wrote, what is the use of scribes and devotees of the law, preachers in the rest, when there are no shepherds for the flock? And so that's what the Bible says. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion for them. And it says uh, here in Matthew, he healed their sick. Mark says, and he began to teach them many things. Luke says he was moved with compassion and he began to speak to them the kingdom of God. John says he was moved with compassion and he said, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? But in all four accounts, being moved led to something tangible. You see that? And in this case, it says that he began healing their people. You know, the crowd wasn't a, a discomfort for Jesus. The crowd was not a problem for them. He didn't look at them and become frustrated because they had ruined his plans for a spiritual retreat. So what about us? How do we respond when there are people in the way of our well-laid-out plans? How do we react when it's our personal comfort that's in question? You know, I struggle with this at Christmas. My family, my girls get on to me every year. You know, I'm kind of a Scrooge when it comes to Christmas because I think we lose a lot of the, the quiet, still moments and we lose it in all the stuff. And I can just get all out of sorts when people trying to love each other and enjoy themselves get in my way of enjoying the solitude of the holy moment. <laughs> right? And my girls are like, dude. Yeah. You, you, know, the, you know those eye, eye expressions? There he goes again. He's starting in. He's starting in on his Christmas lecture. You know? It's true confession. But think about the people. Are people just in your way? People you encounter, are they just in our way? Do we resent them? We might have a different perspective if we saw these people who fall into our paths and look at them the way Jesus saw the crowds and saw people that were in need of hope and forgiveness and salvation. And so we look at the way Jesus reacts here in this story, and that's why I said in the kingdom of God... Compassion takes priority over personal comfort. And we keep looking on here. And we'll see also that in the kingdom of God, concern for others takes priority over personal convenience. All right, the text tells us uh, it became evening. So it's late in the day already when he begins teaching and healing. It gets even later into the evening. And we assume the disciples themselves are the ones becoming hungry. 
And they come to him and they say to him, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. (laughs) Such loving, compassionate concern for all the masses. They're basically telling Jesus, let these people go fend for themselves, right? Now, why do you think, why do you think, I know what I think, why do you think they wanted to send the people away? Cyrus, why would you send the people away in that moment? Ah, <laughs> you have plans. Yeah. It's probably the best answer. Well, sure. Yeah. They need to go eat. Send them on. Send them on their way. Let them go find some food. Yeah, that could be. We had some friends that would always say, uh, as the hour would get later and later and later, the husband would look at the wife and say, Honey, let's go on to bed so these sweet people can go home. (laughs) I don't know, but I love Jesus' response here. He says, No, you feed them. You, You feed them. Go ahead, you feed them. How inconvenient would this be, right? This was supposed to be the rest. This was supposed to be a spiritual retreat. They were going to get their Jesus time. Right? They were going to, right? They were going to get their Jesus time without all these other people. And he says, you feed them. You feed them. They don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. Mark's gospel account tells us that it would have cost around 200 denarii to feed all those people. And uh, I didn't live in the first century Palestine. I, guess I lived in East Texas, so I always want to say Palestine. I didn't live in first century Palestine, so, but people who know more than me about that history say that uh, a day laborer earned about a denarius a day. Like one, one denarius a day was what they would earn monetarily. And Mark's gospel tells us that to feed all these people would have cost 200 of those uh, denarii. And so I'm not a math expert, but I know that 200 full days of work for one person would be almost seven months. And then you divide that by 12, if all 12 disciples were going to work it out, and maybe 16 days each. So think about this, right? It's going to cost I make a buck a day, and it's going to cost 200 bucks to feed all these people. There's 12 of us, so my share is going to be $16. And they worked, let's say they worked a six-day work week, because we know they would have honored the Sabbath, right? Uh, so this is almost three weeks at six days a week. And that doesn't count anything that they might need to eat for themselves. So you can kind of see them do it like, okay. Uh, so the question may have been rhetorical, uh, but they ask him, and again, in Mark's account, they ask him, you know how much it's going to cost to feed all these people? Cost is kind of a matter of convenience, isn't it? Uh, how often might we fail to show concern for the needs of others just, just because it's inconvenient? Our hearts aren't wrong. They're not in the right place. Our minds are just elsewhere. Yeah? You know, maybe like disciples, we can become concerned about how much it might cost to show concern for the needs of another. And by cost, especially in Collin County, Texas, we got to keep in mind, cost isn't just 
about the money. Cost is time. Cost is energy. You know, I tell Holly all the time, you know, uh, the Lord has really helped me learn to love people. But people are exhausting. <laughs> you know, I'm a bit of an introvert by nature. You know, I recharge by just unplugging from everything. But the Lord does his work in people's lives. He conforms us to the image of Christ. And so he's helped me learn to love people. But that, for me at least, and we're all different, but it comes at a great personal cost. And then it's not money. It's just physical exhaustion, you know. So I love all you people, but you wear me out. <laughs> no, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Uh, but cost isn't just time and money. And I wonder... If we don't fail to show the concern that Jesus showed here sometimes, just because it doesn't fit into our schedules. I can be so guilty of that. Y'all know who Zig Ziglar is? He's married to the redhead. That was a bad impression, I'm sorry. Uh, he used to give people a little plastic disc that had the letters T-U-I-T stamped on it. And he said, most people have good intentions. They just don't ever get around to it. So he says, I'll help. I'll give my life. I'll, I'll help someone else when I get around to it. And so Zig Ziglar began to give out these little plastic discs with the letters T-U-I-T on there. And he'd say, now you've got your round to it. <laughs> you know, I'll help when I get around to it. So Zig would say, all right, now you've got your round to it. Jesus didn't need a round to it. All right, that's the point. He didn't ever say, I'll do it when I get around to it. He saw their need and he acted. The people were hungry, hungry, so he set out to feed them, regardless of how long it might take or how much it might cost. And so, in the kingdom, concern for others takes priority over personal conveniences, at least should. He knew how much it would cost, but he knew what he was about to do also. So he tells the disciples, you feed them. And they say, well, here's what we've got. We've got five loaves, which are about the size of a pita, Two little fish, and I'm, I don't know this. I'm imagining the size of sardines probably, you know, something like that. I don't know. I doubt it was a swordfish. Because, anyway. So he says, you go and you do this. And so he says, they need to, uh, he says, bring them to, bring them here to me. Bring me the five little pieces of bread. Bring me the two fish. Bring them to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate. And some people want to say that didn't really happen. That he was just pretending or he was deceiving them. And yet all four gospel writers said this was the coolest day of our lives. Other than the resurrection probably. When he showed up in the upper room. I'm just trying to put myself in the, in the place of them. So here's the last thing, or one of the last, the, there's a couple more here, but, and it's this that, uh, I'm not sure I say it right. Even the meager can be miraculous when it's offered in faith and placed into the hands of Jesus. Even the meager can be miraculous when it's offered in faith and placed into the hands of Jesus. It, the, the miracle wasn't that there, were, there happened to be five loaves and two fish. The miracle was what happened when it was placed into the hands of Jesus. That's when the miracle came. You look what he did with it. He begins to break it. 
He begins to break it, and he begins to pass it out to the twelve, and the twelve begin to pass it out to the people. Five thousand plus women and children, all the gospel writers tell us. So probably at least 10,000 people or more. And they all ate. He just keeps breaking it, and it just keeps multiplying. I remember when Holly and I were first married, she would get really, really, really upset sometimes towards the end of the month. Just how's it all going to stretch? How are these last few dollars going to stretch to the end of the month? We've all been there. We've all been there. And I remember those conversations. I remember saying, Has he ever left us without any? There's always, I mean, there were some times in those days that it was really tight. But there was always, he just kept multiplying it. He does what he does. Um, this is a distinction I want us to see. Before the food was in Jesus' hands, it was enough for one person. But in the hands of Jesus, it fed 5,000 men plus women and children. That meager amount of food became something miraculous in his hands. That's the difference between him and me. Dwight Moody never finished high school. D.L. Moody. He knew nothing of the Bible before his conversion. He spoke so fast that people had a hard time understanding him, but God used him to preach all over the United States and to lead thousands of people to faith in Christ. David Wilkerson saw a picture of some New York City teenagers and was so moved with compassion for them that he resigned his job in his church. He moved to New York City to start a street ministry from scratch with very few resources. Today, 86% of the people associated with Times Square Church say they never used drugs again. And the church in Times Square now has over 8,000 members. And it's interesting, when David Wilkerson moved to New York City to start that ministry to those people, Times Square was one of the nastiest, dirtiest, roughest, grossest places in the United States of America. And it's not that way today. And politicians will point to things they've done and they'll point to things, you know, civic efforts to clean up the city and all this stuff. But I'm here to tell you, it's the presence of Jesus in Times Square that has made the difference in that place. Bill Bright had a burden for college students, so he began to share Jesus with one person at a time on the UCLA campus. And today, Campus Crusade has over 25,000 full-time staff in 196 countries and over 4 billion people have seen the Jesus film in 234 countries and 730 languages. Don't ever say that what you have to offer God is too small or too insignificant. What are some examples that y'all can give me of somebody who offered God all they had and God did something miraculous with it? You got any examples y'all can share with the, with the group? Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse. Elaborate. Yeah. Doing all of these things all over. Beautiful organization. And uh, it's just, they're doing things in people's lives that it's, it's pretty special. Cool. Who else or what else? What other? Maybe, maybe from history, maybe examples 
from history or from the Bible or from your life experience? What are some other? I'm thinking of Gideon's army. You know, those few guys that God took did what no one else could have done. What else? Any? Just Samaritan's Purse and the three I named? I bet there's more than that. And he failed a few times too, didn't he? To see, to see once he finally said mm -hmm. yes, what the Lord did through him, that wasn't most you Imagine looking back and seeing thousands of people following you across this desolate, nasty marsh that the Lord just happened to part so you could walk past. Pretty wild. Pretty cool. Don't ever say what you have to offer him is too small or insignificant. Be willing to take what you have and place it in his hands. A friend of mine shared this poem with me. She used to share this with everybody. She was a dear, dear saint. She'd say, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And what I can do, I will do for the glory of God. And the Lord has used that sweet lady to impact the lives of thousands of special needs adults all over the state of Louisiana. It's really cool. So she's a special friend. So just remember that multiplying, the multiplying Christ is with us still. He's still with us. He's still active. He's ready to take our scant resources and make them equal to the task. And folks, as we look around this room and this facility, our scant resources are really pretty nice. And just imagine what the Lord can do with this. While we're praying so fervently for our search team and for our new pastor, because we know what the Lord can do if we would just keep placing this in, we've already seen what he's done during our interim time, and we know he's going to just keep multiplying that. He's still up to the task. And our ability is not measured by the size of this building or by the, by the number of chairs in our worship center or by the sum total of our resources or by our budgets or anything else like that. Because it's Christ, it is Jesus whose supernatural power empowers us to do impossible tasks. So he said the meager can be miraculous. If it's offered in faith, placed into the hands of, of, of Jesus. I'm not going to, uh, y'all know the song, right? Little is much. Little is much. When what? Little? Oh, come on, don't make me sing. I had to sing on the Ten Commandment thing on the Super Bowl. I guess I'll have to. Pastor knows it. He's just not going to sing it with me. Look at him over there. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it. Here's the best part. This is the conditional part. If, if you go, I'm all over the octaves here. In Jesus' name, I screwed up the melody. Melody. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go. In Jesus' name. That's why I said we offer it in faith. And we place it in his hands. I think that's probably why John includes the fact that it's a little boy's fish and a little boy's bread. Because Jesus has said so many times, you know, suffer little children to come unto me. The kingdom of God uh, is like little children coming in obedient, wide-eyed faith. I think it's probably why John includes that detail that some of the others don't. And so that brings us to the last thought I want to share tonight, and that Jesus alone can spiritually satisfy, and he is more than sufficient to do just that.
You see, we've shifted now. We're going from the physical need to the spiritual need. Jesus alone can spiritually satisfy because there is a, there is a very important spiritual application to this text. But I want you to see physically what happens. He breaks the load and it says they all ate and were satisfied. And not only were they satisfied, they took up 12 baskets full of leftovers. More than sufficient. I'm reminded of John 6, 35. Let's look over there. Do you mark Luke John? I'll put it on your handout there. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? So I really, I believe this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is a physical miracle that Jesus did to teach the spiritual lesson that he alone can satisfy. He's offering this bread, but he's the true bread of life that alone can satisfy. And he's more than sufficient to do that because the text tells us they had 12 baskets full. Everybody was satisfied. John chapter 6, he who eats this bread will never hunger and he who drinks it will never thirst. The living water, bread of life. So I was not originally signed up to teach tonight, but Terry's was planning to go on vacation, so we swapped our schedule around, and I think it's just been a blessing for me to get to share this particular text and to reacquaint myself with this very familiar story. Don't ever let the familiar, uh, you know, become something we don't give much thought to or don't care about. But what is the word? Familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. Let's not do that with these stories we've known all of our lives because what an awesome spiritual lesson about Jesus and about his power. So we're going to lay it in his hands and we're going to let him multiply it and take what we've got and do something with it that we could never possibly imagine. Does that sound pretty good? Let's do that. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this text and this story that is in all four of the gospels, Lord, that we know you've given us for a reason. Father, and we know your kingdom is already and not yet. We know that you are king and you are ruler and yet we still wait for the final fulfillment of some of the promises. And so we're in this in-between time, Lord, where we want to serve you. We want to make our church, our city, our county, our state, our world a little more like heaven on earth. And so, Father, I pray that as your people, we would reflect these kingdom values as we encounter others, that we would have your compassion, your concern, Lord, because we know that you alone are the bread of life that can give true life to satisfy people's spiritual hunger. So Lord, use us to that end, we pray. We lay it in your hands in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you all. And I think I may be next. I don't know. I've got three of the next four. So, you know, we'll see you three of the next four weeks anyway.